You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, his uncle has a country place that no one knows about. Oh. It's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. That's that song about the cheese, right? That's a lyric what? about that song about cheese. I No, it's not about cheese. It's about a car. It's about cheese. It's called bar cheddar. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> Extra Red sharp bar Canadian bar cheddar. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm actually I'm pretty happy right now. I can't complain too much about anything, and not that anybody would really give me too much mind if I did. But exactly, it's like nobody tunes into the show. Like, hey, I wonder what they're bitching about this week. Yeah, because we're pretty <sighs> good about not bitching about stuff. Go back and listen to some of our archives, yep. and we've never really crossed that Rubicon and been consistently bitchy about anything, which is good. Well, here we go. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Did I jinx us? That being said, this has happened to me more than once, but it happened to me again very recently. Somebody said, like, one of the strangest sentences I can possibly imagine, they told me that I draw wrong. Well, what, do you hold a pencil with your toes or something? Yeah, I don't know what they mean by that. So we've talked about it in brief a couple of times yeah. on the show, but maybe we picked up a new listener this week. Maybe. So I am, I don't like using the word, but I am an artist. I like to draw. I general medium is uh, charcoals and pencils and stuff like that. Yes. And I like to draw portraits. That's my you know, style of choice. I draw large. I typically draw like, you know, two feet by three feet or two and a half by whatever. I t- you know, I tend to draw large. Yes. And I always grid the paper out right. with what I'm going to draw because it helps get the proportions correct. And like the eye goes, you know, that way it doesn't come out looking like a Picasso. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly why you do that. Yes. But I, I just thought that was like a really weird and interesting comment for somebody to make to tell me that I'm drawing wrong. Um, I had one ex-girlfriend told me that I draw wrong because whenever I draw faces, I tend to start with the eyes and work my way out. Right. And apparently you're supposed to do it in the other direction. Start with it. I guess. your way out and work your way into the eyes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, says who? Who's the boss? I don't know. Right. Who cares? I know. She went to art college. So apparently she knows what she's talking about. And I had another ex-girlfriend who literally said this sentence to me, you draw like a boy. I... Whatever the f*** that's supposed to mean. <laughs> well, I do wear pants when I draw, and boys tend yeah. to wear pants, so I guess that's what it means. Yep. Maybe that's what it meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really caught wearing a bra when I draw. <laughs> so... I mean, I think for, yeah. for people who are on the artistic side, I, too, I have my artistic side. I don't draw, but I write. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we all have our methodologies for how we approach whatever our artistic endeavor of choice is. 
Yep. And inevitably, people who do not share that same endeavor will tell you from their opinion that you are doing it wrong. And it doesn't matter what you do. I've, heard, I've had that told to me about writing, too. And I always ask the same thing. You write wrong. Well, where, where can I find your stories? Where can I go online and where can I go buy a book of your stuff? And maybe I can learn a trick or two from you from how you do it. And then they say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, and then they disappear because they don't do that. But it's, it's easy to be right. contrary and think that the things that we do as artistic endeavors are easy because they've never done them. Right. Uh, there was a girl that I follow on YouTube that's like that post guitar, you know, she's learning to play guitar. And, you know, a lot of people have like negative comments to her. And I left her a comment. I was like, look, you know, I taught myself how to ride a unicycle at age 50. You know, the only people that are going to tell you that you can't do something are failures. Right. And then going back to the person that told me that I draw wrong, the most recent one, I asked him, I was like, you know, I, you used to draw, I used to draw, you know, quite a bit. And he's actually a really good drawer. Mm -hmm. I go, how come you don't do it anymore? And I know why he doesn't do it anymore, but I was just setting him up. And he goes, oh, my God, it would, I would spend like 20, sometimes 30 hours on a single drawing. I would work at it for like two or three hours a time. And I would just like drive myself nuts, just, you know, obsessing over every last detail. And I said to him, well, if when I draw, I am enjoying the process. And when you draw, you're not enjoying the process. I'm going to say you're the one that's doing it wrong. I, I can't argue with that. The, for me, the... The feeling of creativity, the sound of the keyboard under my fingers, the rereading my writing and fixing where I've made mistakes is a, is a tremendous amount of fun. I get a tremendous amount of enjoyment from that. As we say this, this is a theme in a really good book that I read just a few months ago called Bluebeard by Kurt Vonnegut. If you have uh, the opportunity to listen to the audio version of it, check it out. It's really good. And it delves into all of this stuff. Now, if you excuse me as I get down off of my high horse. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting down wrong, Bill. You're supposed to go off the other side. Jeez, don't you know anything? So at any rate, uh, before we get into the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. All right, whenever you look at the days of the week, yes. as you look and you see the word Wednesday, you will notice that Wednesday is spelled really messed up as a word. It's very strange it's it has a Y at the end. I, I never got that. <laughs> no, it's spelled Wednesday. Yes. Want to take a stab in the dark as to why Wednesday is spelled that so crazy like that? I, I'll I'll take my dark stabbings at the end of the show, and uh, I'll give you an All answer right. then. Very good. So, but this is going to be the week beginning February. And why is February spelled like that for that matter? That one's got a Y at the end, too. Hey. But anyway, this is week beginning February the 27th, and we are going to say your turn to start. All right. February 27th, 1968. On the nightly news, CBS news anchor Walter Cronkite delivers a, an editorial and effectively tells the two-thirds of the population watching the newscast that America's chances of winning the Vietnam War are zero and that everybody involved in protracting this war should be should be ashamed of themselves and that we cannot win it. It's not worth the well, loss well, of Well, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. And as we know from this year's program, the guy who heard this the loudest and clearest was the, the person whose reputation we are apparently trying to rehabilitate over the course of 2023, good old Richard Nixon. But uh, he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't do anything right away because it, it was 68. What's interesting, though, 
And the reason that I, I, I grabbed this as, a, as our talking point to start the show is yep. in, in talking with family members and other people who are our age and older, generally, is when discussing the state of the media as it is today, I'm often told, well, it didn't used to be this way. It didn't used to be so polarized. It wasn't just people telling you one side or the other. They would give you both sides and let you figure it out on your own, and they never editorialized. Well, that's not right. True I don't believe that for a second, do you? <laughs> that's never been true ever in the history of any media in the history of the universe. No. And as an example, here's you know Cronkite telling the American people, changing the discussion, speaking truth to power, is that the U.S. can't win this war. Galvanizing the people who are still patriotic for staying in Vietnam against it, and that was what led to the end, kind of, of the Vietnam War, at least in the public consciousness. My aunt Eva was born in 1925. I remember talking to her right around the time of the first Gulf War. Right. Now, the first Gulf War there in 1991, Operation Desert Storm, you know, that was the first time that America had like a real military adventure after Vietnam. You know, a real one that, you know, in, in my lifetime or in our lifetime. I mean, Vietnam happened when we were babies, but it started before we were babies. I don't have, I have no tangent memory of Vietnam. You know, Desert Storm was like a new thing and I was, you know, I was pretty protesting about it for the whole month that it was on for. But I remember my aunt telling me the popular myth of World War II just being like a team effort and everybody loved it and everybody was go, 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 America, America. She's like, no, no, no. There were plenty of people that were protesting World War II. Yeah. It's just that you don't see that on television. Right. They don't cover it. Right, right. And there were whole like organizations of like the German-American Bund who were allied with the Axis powers in the United States until they ultimately were outlawed after 1941. I know there was a there was a large class of artists who ended up as conscientious objectors and went to prison, like poet Robert Lowell, among others. It's always been a thing. It's just the way that it's reported has been different. Sure. What I'm bringing back to is that like in the 1950s with the coverage of the McCarthy hearings in the 60s with Vietnam and the 1970s with Watergate, there's always been an opinion that has come out yeah. as part of the mass media, irrespective of what people our age and older will tell you about how they remember things from when they were sprightly young folk. I think the big difference now is that there are opinion programs like Tucker Carlson, like Rachel Maddow, you know, pick your poison, mm -hmm. that have a very similar look to news programs. Right. But they're not news, they're opinion programs. And... There are a lot of programs now that look like Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson's programs that are about, like, lizard people that live in the center of the earth. And, <laughs> you know, we're all in a simulation, and they're hearing voices of Elvis. So uh, it, the whole world is a, is a really strange place uh, with a strange, strange media landscape. All right. So let's go back to simpler times, uh, 1983, for an example, when there was only a couple of channels to choose from. February the 28th, 1983, the series finale of MASH, which is a two-hour TV movie called Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, airs on, on television. It was watched by a record 106 million viewers. That's insane. Yeah, that's more than the Super Bowl, I think, for 83 even. Yeah, 106 million viewers. There's only 300 and something million people in the United States. Right. So uh, the episode was originally written to be like 90 minutes, right? Yes. But a brush fire broke out on the set. They actually worked that into the script oh. of the movie. Oh, good. I guess that's good news. Yeah, yeah I remember that scene. Uh, Colonel Potter is looking out 
And uh, Klinger says, wow, what a beautiful sunset. And Potter goes, yeah, most of the sunsets I've seen are in that direction. <laughs> That's not a sunset. We got to move. I especially appreciate how well MASH, you know, didn't take any sides and just presented down the middle so that I could make up my own <laughs> mind about the importance of the Korean War, considering it was the 1980s. No, what's very interesting about MASH is it was a, quote-unquote, a sitcom uh, set in the Korean War, and the way it was set up was anytime they were in the cap, you know, the cafeteria, the mess hall or whatever, mm-hmm. or in the swamp, in their tents, whatever it was, there was always canned laughter. Right. But the scenes that took place in the operating rooms, yeah. there was never any canned laughter in, the, in those scenes. Right. Even though there was jokes, there wasn't canned laughter. Right. So that was like a, re- a real interesting stylized uh, yeah, that is, way to that direct is the, the, those shows. I'd never noticed. But then I haven't, watched, I haven't watched a lot of it since it was originally airing on television. So I'll have to, I'll have to go back yeah. and, and work my way through at some point and, and see, if I, see if I remembered and to notice that. Very recently, like in the past year, I hadn't seen Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, I think since it aired in 83. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of topics that they handle in the movie, PTSD and, for lack of a better term, nervous breakdowns right. and stuff like that. So, you know, I watched the movie, you know, as a, uh, a preteen or just about a teen. And, you know, there's a scene where Hawkeye, you know, witnesses a, a very tragic death and he kind of loses his, uh, his mind for a little bit there. Right. And... You know, as somebody who, you know, has had had some PTSD issues when I, uh, you know, witnessed the death of one of my friends, uh, you know, and it came back bu- bu- uh, bubbling up a couple of years later, you know, going back and watching Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen through adult eyes was really something powerful, you know? Right. I almost wanted to write Alan Alder a letter and just thank him because that his performance in that is just Amazing. Mm-hmm. So, moving on to the first. What do we got? March 1st is World Compliment Day, Bill. It's World Compliment oh, Day. And that's I just, very nice. And you're very nice. Oh, thank you. And I just like to say, world, good job being a sphere. You keep <laughs> up that sphereness, world. You're good at it. Keep on orbiting. Attaboy. Outside. <laughs> Your Keep on spinning it at 1,000 miles an hour. Your equator is exactly right. I remember one time we were at a, a wedding. My friends Joe and Kim were getting married. It was one of the rare circumstances where both my brother and I were invited to the wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, my brother and I have, we have a lot of mutual friends, but, you know, usually I would get invited or he. But in this case, we both were there. There was this dude that was there who went by the name Magoo. Right. And, uh, you know, he meets my brother. Couldn't see well, that guy. And, you know, my brother, you know, makes mention that he's a policeman. And Magoo said, what's the nicest thing that's ever happened to you? And my brother just was like, didn't know what to do with himself. Because usually when people find out that you're a policeman, they usually say, what's the worst thing that's ever happened? Or what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Right. But Magoo wanted to know what the nicest thing was. Oh, well. And that really, really stuck with my brother as a, a nice thing to say. That is definitely a, that's a that's a good question to ask. Gosh, I'll have to I'll have to ruminate on this one a, a little bit because it, in all of the work that I do for the different places that I've worked, I spend a lot of time talking about communication. And 
being able to use the right questions to sort of engage in conversation that subverts the expectations of those with whom you speak. And this is a really good example of that. Uh, it's, uh, wow, wow. That's, um, I'm going to write this down after the show because I, I want to I talk about it with people. Here's a loaded question because I already have my answer. Uh-oh. What is the nicest thing anyone's ever said to you? What's your, what's your best compliment that somebody's ever given you? My best compliment that somebody had ever given to me, and I'll tell you it's going to sound vacuous and stupid, but sometimes something has to be vacuous and stupid to, to really have an impact. I was considerably younger. Much, much yeah. younger. And I was in, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to share a tremendous amount of details, but I was I was sitting down and I was watching a band play and a girl that was sitting next to me turned to me and she said, you are really good looking. And I didn't go anywhere after that, didn't, came out of left field and I thought, thank you. And no one had ever said that to me before and no one had ever said that to me since. And that really <laughs> stuck with me. And it was one of those like, all right, I have to process that for a while because it was such a strange thing to hear. But it was very mm. nice and it really stuck with me. Mine is a loaded question because, like I said, I already had my answer picked out. And I have received this compliment on more than one occasion, but I, I consider it to be the absolute nicest thing that someone could say to me is they say, you inspired me. Ah, that's a good one. If somebody goes and does something because they saw me do it, if I gave them that whole, if I can do it, you can do it kind of thing, and then they turn around and they say, yeah, you inspired me, that, like, a, ugh, like I said, that, that gets me. That, that legitimately moves me. Like, that's the nicest thing you could say to me. So it, keep that in mind. I want you to butter me up. That's the way to do I it. I want you to remember that the next time somebody says, "You don't know how to draw. You're doing it wrong." <laughs> Say, I inspire people you to inspire. do this wrong all the time. Yep. All right. So moving on, March second, nineteen eighty nine, Madonna's "Like a Prayer" premieres as a worldwide Pepsi commercial uh. that lasted. Point oh 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 five seconds. Uh, so Madonna had gotten hired by Pepsi to promote their soda, their tooth rot, with her song "Like a Prayer." And on her own time, she had filmed a music video yes. for the same song. And the music video was, how do you say, controversial? Yes, I pushed the limits of the visual medium at the time, and I yes. loved it. I still love this song. I mean, I'm not a huge Madonna fan, but as far as Madonna songs go, I guess it's okay. I always thought the video had, you know, I mean, it's got some burning crosses in it, you know, not in the Ku Klux Klan kind of way, but in a, in a much different well visual I mean, than, it's, it's, than that. We have to, you know, point out the, the elephant in the room here is like there's a component in the video that is that explores racism as a thing. And it doesn't juxtapose yes. necessarily with the lyrics to the song, but it kind of does. Right. And right. in it, there's a black Jesus who comes to life in the ruins of an African-American church. And there's an interracial kiss with the actor that plays him, whose name I can't remember, but it's, it's like Tony Todd, but it's not Tony Todd and Madonna. And there's this imagery, this like Southern racist imagery of the burning crosses and other things that are all sort of tied into this generalized milieu. And it's really evocative and really, really, really interesting to watch. And it's it's not the record that sort of catapulted Madonna into adult music. The album was, 
but the next single, Express Yourself, really was the one that did that. But Like a Prayer is a fantastic opening uh, single for this album. And Madonna, to her credit, was like, yeah, um, you know, this video may seem controversial, but that's because you're an idiot. You're uptight. Right. You know, uh, there's nothing wrong with this video, she was proudly proclaiming. Right. And then Pepsi pulled all of the commercials. Yep. And Madonna was like, well, you know I'm keeping the money, right? That's your, that's on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't give it yep. back if you don't like the ad after the ad is done and approved, yes. You know what's really funny in the video, though, is, you know, the black actor gets arrested and put in jail for, you know, a crime that he likely didn't commit. Actually, he didn't commit. Right. Uh, he's wrongfully imprisoned. And at the end of the video, Madonna just walks into the police station and you see her mouth the words, he didn't do it. And the cop's like, oh, okay. It just opens up the cell door and he's free. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's that easy, guys. It's that easy. All right. So what do we go for the third? March 3rd, 2010. Alice in Wonderland. It's part by the C.S. Lewis book and a collection of weird-ass poems directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp is released in 2010. And I've seen this movie, Bill. Yep. I couldn't tell you a thing about it other than for the entirety that i was watching it my brain just kept saying oh look another kid in a stripy shirt this is a tim burton movie oh look it's another kid in a stripy <laughs> shirt it's a tim burton movie this looks like a tim burton movie i can't remember anything else about the film whether it follows the narrative of the book or not or anything you know what's really funny is whenever we were doing the research for the show and i saw this one pop up and it was like tim burton did an alice in wonderland movie i was did he and i was like oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember. It's just Tim Burton after God, I don't even know where it started. Probably after Ed Wood, as we discussed. Yeah. Really started getting lazy and formulaic. You know, we always had the same people in the movie. It was right. always an, an IP that already existed. Right. And Danny Elfman did the soundtrack. God, you know, I didn't like I didn't really Tim think Bur about the existing IP thing, but you know, you're right. There's the there's Sweeney Todd, which he did. Yep. That was based on a play. There's... With Johnny Depp with Johnny and Helena Bonham Carter. Carter yeah. right? There's um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is awful, with Deep Roy as all of the Oompa Loompas. There's this. And Tim Burton is now doing Wednesday, which is a, the IP from the Addams Family, which he didn't have anything to do with, now that I think about it. Right. But he did Edward Scissorhands, which was similar visually to the Adams Family TV show. Yes, but at least that wasn't an existing IP. Right. But again, Johnny Depp and Danny Elfman. Yeah. I don't know. I myself personally, I got really bored with Tim Burton uh when he started getting into this Tim Burton Mad Lib that he exists in now. Right. My friend Sarah did encourage me to watch Wednesday, which as of this recording I have not. I kind of don't see myself watching it, but I'll trust Sarah and uh we'll we'll go with it. I have I have not either. I think my, my kids dig it. I went back and I showed them Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton's like first film, and their responses, yep. and, and ultimately my mental response, because I didn't try to undersell or oversell a movie or anything, was like, this is really showing you that it's a movie a lot. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly Tim Burton right there. <laughs> yep. He's showing you that it's a movie. You can't escape the fact that you're watching a movie. So, on March the 4th, 1923, Butter. <laughs> So butter's milk fat content is defined by U.S. Congress, of all people. It is required to be at least 80% milk fat by weight. Huh. That seems very strange to me that Congress got involved 
Yeah. But you, here we are. Yeah, you, you think that's strange until you realize that food that was being sold commercially, not like made in your mm-hmm. house or, you know, sold by the lady down the street who has a cow and churns butter every morning, may, sure. may have contained more things than just milk fat and a butter churn and some salt. It may have right. contained adulterants. So I'm not sure what you, what you would use to adulterate butter, but it could be lard. It could be vegetable shortening and other things that are less expensive than milk fat to make butter. Right. Some companies, I'm putting my finger on my chin as I say this, who are unscrupulous may put other <laughs> things as adulterants in that are not benign, that in certain amounts can cause illness or sickness. So there was this, a whole problem with adulterated food in the 1890s all the way up through the 1920s and into the 1930s, which mm-hmm. led to the creation in the United States of the Food and Drug Administration. That started in about 19, right. 1905 to 1915. It kind of took to get that off the ground. But even in doing that, you still have to define what the standards are to determine whether or not something is something and whether or oh, not okay. it's safe. So to define butter as 80% milk fat, you're differentiating it from margarine, which was also available in the 1920s, and you're differentiating it from shortening, which is also available in the 1920s, and and lard, too. That's another thing, too, that kind of like opens up a bigger conversation. We'll spend a little bit of time, but not a lot, is just American food. Yes. Uh, I've only had the opportunity to go to Canada. That's the only other country I've been to. I know you went to college in England, yes. and you were there for like, what, 18 months? I was there for 18 two months, years? yeah. I never got to the continent, but I, w- I went all over England, yeah. Food in America is way, way, way different than food abroad. And I'm not saying that Canadian food is like 100% better. It's just different. They have different standards than we do. Right. One thing about Canadian food is it's super salty. Everything is really, really, really salty over there, I know. Hmm. I wonder why that is. I noticed when I was overseas that there was a lot more organ meat that was used in food, but that's that's more of an English thing than a international thing anywhere else. Uh-huh. I still enjoyed my way through as much British cooking as I could to the point where I cannot give blood. Do you know that I can't give blood, though? <laughs> I can't give blood really? because, yeah, because I lived in England and ate British beef at the time just as the mad cow scare was starting. And, oh, no kidding. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of years that if you were in the UK at the time, you're forever prohibited from donating blood. So, question. Sure. When you were over in England, did, uh, mad cow notwithstanding, did you did you eat McDonald's? I did not. I went to a place called Wimpy Burgers instead, which was based on the Wimpy character from Popeye, believe it or not, and the hamburgers were better. So I went to McDonald's in Canada. Yes. In Montreal. So McDonald's has this under-the-radar saying, one taste worldwide. They want all their McDonald's to taste the same no matter where, right. where you go. Within reason, though, because one thing I noticed about the McDonald's that I went to in Montreal is the beef was a lot less greasy. Okay. So I don't know what they're using to cook it in, but it was a lot less greasy. Probably maple syrup. <laughs> Lumberjack sweat. <laughs> another thing, well, yeah, hockey puck uh, grinds. Um, <laughs> another thing is uh, there is a Tim Hortons Donuts, right? Yes. That's like their big popular chain, right. kind of like our Dunkin' Donuts. Yes. Have you ever had Tim Hortons donuts? Nope. Okay, so I was astounded by them, and I absolutely fell in love with them because they're not sweet. It's a real unusual thing to be eating a donut that isn't sweet because American donuts are like eating birthday cake. Every every American, like, I don't know, I'm not even pastry, but like 
commercial bread product that's, that's sort of similar to that is like is super sweet. That I did notice when I was in England. Bread tastes right. different. It just doesn't. It tastes like homemade bread, even though it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I was driving home from Ohio in the late fall, one of the rest areas had a Tim Hortons. Even though I wasn't in Canada, they did have a Tim Hortons. And I was very excited because I wanted to get their donuts. The American Tim Hortons dips their donuts in this like glaze so that they are sweet. I was like, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Right, right. All right, let's wrap up the week. March 5th, 1963, the hula hoop is patented, which seems astonishing to me that it would take till 1963 to patent a circle, but (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of where we're at. I think it's the application of the circle that makes the patent work. Right, and the diameter and the, uh, the thickness of the... Well, what I mean by the application is like, what do you do with it? Well, you put it around your hips and you shake your hips and it sort of orbits you. Or if you're like me, it falls down to your feet and you get frustrated. (laughs) But it becomes an activity where your job is to keep that hoop orbiting around you for as long as you can or until you die of exhaustion, whichever comes first. Or like me, until you get it halfway around once and it falls to your feet. I have never been able to successfully hula hoop. Uh, For that matter, I can't skip rope. I can't. I mean, I guess if somebody else is swinging it, I could do it. Look, Bill, but I, to... you know, I know that earlier in the week it was World Compliment Day, but let me just tell you, you're doing those wrong. <laughs> I jump rope wrong. Whenever I see people at the gym and they bring, like, their jump ropes with them, I'm in awe. I I, I have to watch because I, it's just something I can't do. Nobody ever brings a hula hoop to the gym, although I do understand that that is the original intention of hula hoops. Yeah. It was, it was an exercise thing. Yeah, it was an exercise thing, and it was apparently something that little kids could do very well. Became a, a craze. Became a like the Frisbee. Yes. It became like the, remember the clackers? It became like those things. It was a yeah. weird, surprisingly inexpensive, but hugely popular toy that no doubt at some point caused someone in some flyover state to go, won't somebody think of the children? The devil will yeah, get that's it a, they're hula-hooping. That's a uh, covertly very sexy toy, right? for sure. All right, let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. February the 27th, 1932, American Oscar-winning actress Elizabeth, and purple eye enthusiast Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, I think her eyes are naturally purple, and I've never seen eyes that color on any other person. I don't know yeah. how she managed it. Maybe she was from space, but there's something about those eyes that you just can't stop looking at once you see them. Yeah, she was uh, insanely popular. She was the first woman to be paid $1 million to appear in a film, yes. which was 1963's Cleopatra. Which flopped which, mercilessly. Yeah, 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 which lost that money for sure. It went down <laughs> faster than the Titanic, yeah. She was kind of tabloid fodder later in life. Yes. You know, she was friends with Michael Jackson, who was just tabloid magnet she married a dude who was really really young like right at the end who was her caretaker and then she passed away and there was some concern over her will and all this other sort of stuff that was in the her tabloid like life outlived her which is unusual i guess yeah for sure i think her tabloid life was so long and visible that it almost overshadowed her career and her career was fantastic right you know yeah won oscars she did many, many movies. She was a very sought-after actress. Yeah, she, but... she was one of the greats. And one of the last greats to come out of the studio system. And one of the only greats that came out of the studio system that catapulted her career into the 60s and early 1970s and stuff. Kept yeah, on even into the 80s. Along. Yeah, even into the 80s. And still commanding a large salary and a lot of autonomy where a lot of those who were her contemporaries in the 40s and 50s just didn't 
weren't able to make that leap. All right, going on to the 28th. February 28th, 1962. Tommy Chong's daughter, Ray Don Chong, actress in and of her own right, probably best known for being in a film at a time when the dinosaurs walked the earth. Uh, she <laughs> was she was the Cro-Magnon woman in Quest for Fire, who ends up with... Uh, oh, Yes! With uh, yes, in the in the drive was... looking for fire with Ron Perlman and she knows how to make the fire and you can listen to the song by Iron Maiden and learn the whole plot of the movie so you go do that but she was in a bunch of stuff in the eighties and early nineteen nineties uh, to the point where she, it, it was almost surprising not to find her in films that were not like the John she was outside of that sphere of John Hughes actors and actresses but like the immediate ones yep. just underneath right like the Patrick Swayze's and the. Uh, the Charlie Sheen's like she was in with that group of that group of actors. She was in a, a lot of movies. She was in Commando. Yep. She was in Beach Street. Yeah, and it didn't actually railroad her career altogether. But she was in a movie that was semi problematic at its time. Definitely problematic in 2023. Yep, a movie called Soul Man with uh, C. Thomas Howell. Yes, not C. Thomas Howell's best film. Although, again, much like the Madonna video that we talked about earlier, it, it goes on to explore, like, themes of racism. It just does it from an incredibly stupid, stupid perspective. And everyone involved in that yeah. is I'm sure they, they hear it now and they go like, oh. Their heart was definitely in the right place. They just went about it incredibly stupid. Yep. I get to meet Ray Dong Chong incredibly briefly. She was doing autographs at one of the Comic Cons that I go to. And I honestly, I couldn't control myself. I just had, I had to tell her point blank, you are a beautiful woman. And she was like, oh, thank you. And I was like, I don't have anything else to say. I would have, I would have started to just yell the opening to Quest for Fire at her, like, and had somebody air guitar behind me. Yeah, I would have done something stupid. Like, what the hell was Soul Man all about? (laughs) All right. So moving on to March the 1st, 1965. American wrestler Booker T, the five-time, 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 five-time world champion. (laughs) I remember him when he was on WCW, and I used to watch wrestling on Monday nights. Yep, Booker T, he had a troubled life. He was the youngest of eight children. That's a lot. Yeah. And he actually went to, to prison. Did he? For, uh, I believe it was armed robbery. Whenever he got out, he started... You know, he got into uh, sports and professional wrestling. There's somebody, you know, there's a great American success story. He ended up turning his life around. Yeah. You know, like I just said, he was a five-time world champion. Right. He was in the WCW. He was mostly, and he was mostly a tag team wrestler with his uh, his on-screen brother. Right. uh, A tag team called Harlem Heat. Yep. But he had a singles career, and they actually made him the very last WCW champion. Oh. On the day that WCW closed down, they get, he had a title match against Scott Steiner, and he won the championship. So he will forever be the final WCW champion. Oh, that's very that cool. Away. Definitely can't take that away. And he transitioned over to WWE after that. And now he yep. uses commentary, right? Kind of does like pre-show commentary. They bring him back in once a month for the uh, premium live events. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for all accounts, he's a very, very nice dude to talk to. He's done the Comic-Con circuit as well. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah, just and, and a great sense of humor on the guy. You could tell just by his in, in-ring promos and stuff. Nice. If I ever go back to cons, I'll have to look for him. I'd like to tell him he was very entertaining when I was watching him. All right, moving on. March 2nd, 1942. Former frontman for the Velvet Underground and then solo artist who sort of defined underground rock in the proto-punk years, Lou Reed. 
Also, massive consumer oh, yeah. of uh, illicit drugs. He was the guy that sort of rose the furthest out of the factory scene in New York City. Yes. And helped. That's Andy Warhol's business, Andy right? Andy Warhol's business, right. And helped define that sort of East Coast style of sound that dominated the early years before punk was punk and then transitioned into more, I don't want to say mainstream rock and roll, but he's, he's the guy now who gets played on mainstream rock and roll stations. It's only two songs, mm-hmm. Sweet Jane or Walk on the Wild Side. But they still get played a lot. There was a song that he had a music, a very kind of disturbing music video for called No Money Down. Yes. That song I remember. Lou Reed's one of those people that I don't really know a lot about. Everything I've heard from him, I like. I just haven't really explored. Maybe I'll look. Maybe I'll listen to something tomorrow. I know that I, I sort of rediscovered his most recent stuff before he passed away when he guested for a song on the Gorillaz album Plastic Beach, and uh-huh. it was really good to hear him with a really good backing band do this wackadoo <laughs> song full of non sequitur lyrics. All right, so moving on, March the third, nineteen eighty two. The very beautiful and also very talented Jessica Bale. I know her from uh, such films as something Chuck and Larry. She was in that Adam Sandler film, I pronounce you Chuck and That's Larry. The one. But I mean, not for nothing. She's done a lot. I mean, she got her start on the television show Seventh Heaven, which I never watched, but I just remember her being on it because she is a beautiful woman. She was in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot yep. or remake yes. in uh, 2003. Oh, she was in that movie Rules of Attraction. Yeah. Wow, I'm disappointed so far. Yeah, she was in that. <laughs> a few other things, too. Like, she was in Blade Trinity and that A-Team movie that I guess came out the same time as Alice in Wonderland, because I don't remember that happening either. <laughs> but now she's uh, she's more doing, like, producing and stuff. Oh. I basically know her as, oh, she's not Jessica Alba. I thought we were talking about Jessica Alba. <laughs> That's kind of how it, yeah. it is with her. And it's blonde hair name... And that's kind of where it sort of disappears for me. I did like the the A-Team remake. That movie was nutty. It was really stupid and fun. So I'll have to go, oh, back, really? and, I'll have to go back and watch it for her. But uh, it was way more talent in that movie than there should ever have been. And it made for a good two hours of ridiculousness. More recently, she has been starring in a TV series called The Sinner, which was actually really good. She not only starred in it, she was also a producer. And there was a series on Hulu about two years ago called Cruel Summer that she was the executive producer for. That they have been like teasing me with a season two, but it hasn't come out yet. As of this recording. Okay. I'm looking forward to season two because season one was phenomenal. Huh. I will uh, oh, I'll have to Oh, and by the way, part. she's married to Justin Timberlake. Okay, moving on. <laughs> okay, March 4th, 1948. Rock bassist extraordinaire. And I, you know what? I argue with the phrase rock bassist, but I'm going to let it go for now. Chris Squire, who I know as the man who makes the first, like, uh, 37 minutes of the song, Heart of the Sunrise the greatest bass intro in music. You might want to throw in there that he was the bass player for the band Yes. Oh, yeah, he's the bass player for the band Yes, which Heart of the Sunrise (laughs) is the song that I've listened to approximately 42,000 times in the last month. Not quite sure why that is. Up until his death, he was the only member of Yes that appeared in every single lineup. Yeah. Or Yes. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, yes is a very revolving door of cast of characters yes. uh, that are in and out of that band. But Christopher Squire was the one that held it all together. Phenomenal bass player. Phenomenal. And I always comment on how 
late he is on the beat. Like the, uh, that's it's hard to explain, but he, he plays very late on the beat. Mm-hmm. I got to see Yes Live some years ago. I remember the joke you made. You're <laughs> like, oh, really? What song are they gonna play? So yeah, what song do they and, play? Right. But I spent the majority of the time watching him just because he's such a masterful bass player to watch. Yeah, I would love to have have had the opportunity to see Yes Live with him on bass, but alas, my time machine. The flux capacitor is burned out and I can't do it. So what? it's funny, my son is turning into a very prog rocky young gentleman. So we've had the first couple of Yes albums on in super duper heavy rotation here mm-hmm. for the last like six months. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why, but it's been great to sort of reacquaint myself with both the Yes album and Fragile. And wrapping up the birthdays, March the 5th, 1989, little baby Annie... Uh, Anakin Skywalker from the very first of the Star Wars prequels, Jake Lloyd. Oh, a kid who was pretty much bullied out of film by people who like Star Wars movies. And you know what? Yes. I've gone back and I've watched the prequel. I've said this before on this show. I've watched the prequel trilogy a couple of times because I've had my son grow up after they came out. Yeah. And I will stand up and say, you know, The Phantom Menace is is an enjoyable film. And he's not bad. He just he's like seven years old and can't act, and it doesn't matter because he's supposed to be a seven year old kid. I liked. Yeah, Jake not Lloyd only is he seven movie. years old, but he's dealing with George Lucas's dialogue. Right. You know. Right. I mean, there's only so much you can do with. Yippee! <laughs> Are you an angel? So yeah, the kid was like bullied out of acting, just you know, by the internet. He hasn't really made good on it. He's kind of a piece of crap now, unfortunately. It's a shame because you know, had things gone a different, it's one of those. There's going to be a movie somewhere where there's another kid like Jake Lloyd, and he and people cut him a break, and he goes on to make like the second Star Wars prequel movie, and he's not bad at it, and then the third one, and he's real good, and then pretty soon he's like, you know, he's on Endor or whatever the the show is called, Andor. Yep. As, as yep. Darth Vader, and everybody's like, Jake Lloyd is so great. That's a parallel universe, by the way. It's not the one that we live in, but. Yeah, the like the internet is just like completely merciless. I mean, you and I, like I, like you just said, and I agree with you, The Fifth of Menace is it's a, it's an enjoyable popcorn cruncher of a movie. But, I mean, if you were just going to listen to the comment section, you would swear it was. The worst song ever. Oh. Jeff, this was a day. This was a day the Lord has made. <laughs> uh, yep. So my choice this week for the worst song ever is a hard to say what the name of the song is because the name of the song is Mm-mm-mm-mm, which doesn't roll off the tongue. It actually doesn't roll off the tongue at all. It doesn't. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, a song called Mm-mm-mm-mm by the Crash Chest Dummies. Let's just play the clip and get it out of the way. Okay. God had come to school, but when he finally came back, his hair had turned from black into bright white. He said that it was from when the cousin smashed so So this song is awful. There's, there's nothing else I can say about this song. It's so it's so 90s. It's very 90s. This song falls into the bucket of songs that are like message songs or story songs, but the stories don't 
are, are they're supposed to make you like reconsider your position on something. I don't know. I don't. I don't get that message at well, all. You, yeah, but this I mean, is... cons- cons- <laughs> this, okay. So this. So I'm gonna like I said, the other songs in this bucket include, but are not limited to, ironic, by also Canadian, Alanis Morissette. Yeah. The song "What It's Like," which was featured on this show when we talked about Everlast about yeah people who have tough lives in between yeah. the, the bridge and chorus and then this song which is there was a girl with spots there was a kid who went to church and kibbied on the floor and there was a guy who got in a car wreck and his hair turned gray i don't know what it's supposed to make me think about but those are the three things I, that take place in this stupid song yeah exactly you just summed up the song in under 20 words <laughs> But this comes in that part of the 90s where they were just signing... Anybody, yeah. A, you know, a, like, oh, we got this new band. They're called Crash Test Dummies. What kind of music are they? Uh, they're weird. They're weird. Sign them. Right. You know, sight unseen. I remember the Crash Test Dummies before this song came out. They had another song called Superman Song, yeah. which also is terrible. So I only knew, like, these... Two songs, even though I saw them live. Oh, I wow. saw Crash Test Dummies live. Did you really? Where were they? Who are they opening for? Yes. <laughs> no, it was like a, a radio station birthday party. Oh. They happened to be there. I was there to see another band called Pawson Dixon, but th- that's irrelevant to the story here. Yes. So, so I only really knew Superman song and mm-mm-mm-mm, uh, the Campbell Soup song over here <laughs> and. <laughs> So I was kind of like convinced that the Crash Test Dummies were terrible, but then I went and I listened to God Shuffled His Feet, the album that this song is on, right. and Mm-mm-mm-mm is probably the worst song on the album, although there are a couple of songs that are pretty bad, but there's other songs on this album, Jeff, right. that are fantastic. There's a song that really should have been the single called Afternoons and Coffee Spoons. Yes. That song's super catchy. It was a single over in England, but it didn't. I don't think it did too much over here. So hilariously, you know, speaking of, of England, so the mm song yep. went to, it was like number four, number two or something in the UK, except it was yep. released in the UK when I was back here in the States. It was released in, right. in like November, December of 93 in the UK. Yeah. It was released here first in October. So I was already on a plane on my way back and I never heard this song in the United States. And then the other songs that that had charted off of this record, they were all popular when I was in between my time in the UK, and when I flew back, they would they never charted again. So I had n- I never heard of this band until until I found a Weird Al Yankovic parody of them, and thought, Oh like, yeah, Daily that, News, I think it was called yeah, Headline what, News. Who the heck is the Crash Test Dummies? And this is maybe like twelve years ago. Oh really? Yeah, that's something. Whenever Weird Al does a song and you don't realize it's a, a parody, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it says like it's a parody of Crashes, but that song was also popular when I was in between here in England, so it wasn't on the charts when I right. was around. So it was a really weird like blind spot to listen to this song for this week and think like, okay, there's uh, there's no chorus except for the hums. The thing about this song, like I went and I watched some YouTube video where the singer Brad Roberts, he was talking about like what the song is, and I was like, well. Good. Somebody explained it to me. Right. And they were basically two of the people, uh, the the kid that his hair turns white. That was based on somebody that was like at Niagara Falls, and they almost went over the falls, and the trauma of it turned his hair white from the time he left the shore to the time he got back. His hair had completely changed color. Hmm. So that was like mm. a, a thing. 
Our friend Brad Roberts has mm. a large birthmark near the bottom of his spine, which he always thought was unsightly, and he didn't like getting you know, changed for gym class because people would make fun of him. Ah. So that part of the song is based on him. And then he actually knew somebody whose parents were super religious, and they would like speak in tongues and get slain by the spirit, as they call it, and, and have these like real heavy duty and ultimately embarrassing religious moments. So they're all kind of like real people kind of a deal. But at the same time, who is this song for? Yeah. Yeah. Why do I care about these people and their stories? Yeah. Like, there's nothing that ties them together with any. It's not like irony it ties the sh- stuff that happens to Alanis Morrison together and ironic and re-examining the way you look at homeless people or people who are have teenage pregnancies and whatever is how you use the what it's like song the what it's like makes you do that this one doesn't yeah. doesn't do that it just presents it like there's a guy and his hair turned white yep and then well that's the thing too like we talked about before like i have a problem with songs about flying because people are like hey i want to fly you know so they feel like they relate to that who the relates to anything in this song you know yeah uh, unless you're like the mother from poltergeist hey my hair turned white after a traumatic experience you know to me it seems like and i watched the video a couple of times today is that it was i think they're supposed to impart the why we should care by virtue of brad's facial expressions when he does the because <laughs> he looks at us and he yeah. cries box an eyebrow and he goes like hmm and I, I think like, like what? But that's because there's no way to lip sync a whisper, Jeff. Yeah, right. What am I supposed <laughs> to take away from this? Like, don't hmm me, hmm what? <laughs> and the other thing too about Brad Roberts is he has this like impossibly deep voice. Yeah. He's like a bass. He's a bass baritone. Right. I just imagine like either a cover band or somebody getting up and wanting to do this song at karaoke. There's no way to sing along with this song without to, imperson- You have to huff without free doing on. the horrible impersonation of the guy. Yeah, you, you, you have know? to huff free on to make your vocal cords freeze, and then you can <laughs> then you can do it. Imagine like not like having like a mental fart and not being able to like remember the name of the song. Hey, what's the name of that song? What song? The one that's like. <laughs> it's impossible to sing along with this. Uh, let me see if I can remember the name. Hmm. 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 No, I can't remember. Hmm. It was a song. Remember this song with the guy's well, the hair turns white. Hmm. Oh, you mean hmm? Is that what it's called? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, they throw me out of uh, Newbury Comics. You know what's interesting though is whenever I was in bands, my method of writing songs is I would just stick in nonsense words and then you know to get the rhythm and the melody of the lyrics, yeah. and then I would stick in the actual lyrics later. Right. And that's how this song came about. The, he had no idea what the chorus was going to be. So he just went, <laughs> right? Yes. And then he presented the song the, as a demo to the band. And he was like, this is what I want to do. I just don't know what I'm going to do for the chorus yet. And they're like, don't do anything with the chorus. That's awesome. And that's how it came to be. They worked for the monkeys with the Pleasant Valley Sunday, right? We need a, we need another verse. And they're like, da 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 da. Oh sure, yeah. You know, no, no, we'll just keep that in there. Well, there's no like words. Yeah, that's all right. No one's gonna, they're gonna be singing along anyway. So funny story. The theme song to Worst Song Ever, that da 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 da. Yes. That is a clip from my old band, Too Many Gents. So there's a, you know letting the, the genie out of the ball a little bit or showing how the sausage is made a little bit is 
the joke of worst song ever is a song that I wrote or I had a part in writing. Right. I didn't know what I was going to do for the chorus of that song. And the drummer said to me, he goes, why don't you do what you always do? Just go, da 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 And that ended, up being <laughs> that ended up being the lyric for the song. Hey, I have another nonsense word for you, Joe. Uh-oh. Wednesday. Oh, man. All right. Here we are with the answer to our very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff, the name of the middle of the week, Wednesday, hump day, as we call it out here in the United States. Get it? Because you're, you're over the hump. Isn't that oh, funny? Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. So anyway, Wednesday is spelt strangely. It's it's spelt Wednesday. Right. Why is Wednesday such a problem? Hmm. 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 I have no idea, Bill. I'm going to take a guess. Because okay. uh, the guy who originally proposed it wanted it to be a different day, but he had a hair lip, and it came out as Wednesday. Nope. All right. Well, there you Horrible go. guess, too. I was, so, I was trying hard to like pull something together, and I just couldn't do it. The days of the week are named after planets and gods. So Saturday is named after Saturn, which is also a planet and a god. Sunday is the sun. Monday is the moon. But your friends and mine, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, are all named after Norse gods. So we have Tyr, which is where Tuesday comes from. Thursday is Thor's day. Oh. Friday is named after Frigg, or Fry. And Wednesday is originally Woden's day, which is why it's, it's spelled so weird. It's originally Woden, or Odin, which is Thor's father. Oh. Woden's day. Wednesday wow. is named for Woden. Yep. Well, what is February 29th named? That's leap year. I know, I'm teasing. I don't know if there's another god associated with that day. Or does it just borrow one of the names of the other days? Probably not. All I know is that I'm, I'm just glad they didn't name any days of the week after Uranus! Oh! <laughs> All right. That'd be a stinky day. Uh, that, 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 Uranus would be Taco Tuesday, I guess. <laughs> So at any rate, that's gonna wrap, <laughs> that's gonna wrap up the show for this week, guys. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. It won't be on a Wednesday. Good night, everybody. <laughs> good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly. Or this week was way better than last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called Spack Group. That's group with two O's and two P's. We're looking for Twibbly. Subscribe to the podcast. That way you can guess where and how many times Bill had to edit out the phrase, well, there you go, from Jeff's audio track before publication.